1: Hello, I'm David Kern with the Searcy Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Here's my quote for the day. Everybody ready for this? I'm going to begin with a Greek word. Actually, a Greek name. Anakarsis. That's a person. Anacharsis. Anacharsis expressed wonder at the fact that in Greece... Wise men spoke and fools decided." That's from Plutarch, his essay on Solon, page 66, if you have the great books. And again, Anikarsis expressed wonder at the fact that in Greece, wise men spoke and fools decided. Well, tonight we're going to talk about speaking and making decisions because we're going to be talking about history. And I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but you probably somewhere in the margins of your mind have thought to yourself, a lot of history happens because people made decisions. That's right. People made decisions, convinced other people, and then acted on them. That's history right there. That's what, that's what happens And his People make decisions and then try to persuade other people. And the ones who persuade the most other people, they're the ones who make history. So, the question for tonight is related to, well, I'll just read it. Can you give an example of how to teach history classically, since you say we should not teach subjects but arts? Some of you may have seen a a version of that online. I think I got it right. Um, Now, before I answer that question, I owe you an update on my sleuthing, don't I? i've 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 told you that i'm tracking down the killer i've identified i told you i identified the weapon right those of you who have been tracking tracing are following along You remember did I tell you the weapon? The weapon is crucial. Yeah, the weapon is crucial when I when I discovered the weapon Everything became clear to me. I almost don't even care who did it now that I found the weapon Because the weapon is what killed right? Because as we all know, it's not, weapon, it's not people that kill people, it's weapons. Well, okay, that's backwards. But anyway, so what I've discovered so far, I've told you, end of the 16th century near Paris, the weapon is method. Now, the next thing I've been able to figure out, well, I should maybe add, sometimes I just collect evidence. And a piece of evidence that I have found is this horrifying thing you won't believe this it's so disgusting it's it's like the brains were battered out or something and this was left on the walk this is the most horrible thought i've ever had in my whole life the evidence of the killing all around the body there were textbooks kid you not prior to this day nobody made a textbook why would you do that to somebody but but beginning with the death of classical education, rapidly, the textbook comes in. Okay, so when you see a textbook, you know classical education is dead. Okay, now, having said that, that's related to the, to the topic for tonight, because the question is, well, the, the, the post-amble to the question was, we're not supposed to teach subjects but arts, you say. Right. And I have I've said, don't teach subjects, teach arts. But I better take at least a moment or two to review some thoughts and then explain why I would make such a crazy proclamation. So let's review a little bit. Some of the things I've talked about over the last couple of weeks include the Holy Trinity as the structure of reality, as as reality emanating out of, I guess, maybe is a word for the Holy Trinity. And so no matter what we're studying, it's always valuable to study it in light of the Holy Trinity. And in particular, I think the Son, the Word incarnate, the Logos incarnate, reveals so much to us. It is He that enlightens every man that comes into the world, John 1.5 says. And so my argument or my contention or my belief is that the very structure of the way we think is is the form of Christ. So Christ said I am the truth. And who is he? He's the incarnate word. So the truth as we know it is always truth incarnated. There's no other way for us to know it. And that's I don't want to say which is why the other, but that's what God did is he revealed himself to us by incarnating deity in the human body. Now, I could go into that a lot more, but that's, that's my medic teaching. That's what, we, that's what we mean by my medic teaching. So if you want to learn more about that, you can ask, either ask about my medic teaching or listen to podcasts about it or look on our website and so on. So there's the Trinity and there's the Logos Incarnate. I also talked about the six desires, and I won't go through the list right now because you can, you can retrace that if you want. Um, but, but human beings have six God-given desires. They're natural to us. They're created desires so yes we are fallen so those desires are broken and and we we express them in the wrong way but the presence of the desire is no more wicked than the presence of our hand right that my hand is evil yes but by nature it's my hand and i'll always have a hand so is it my hand that's evil i mean it's my will that's evil but it's part of me so because i'm evil it's evil right it gets complicated anyway it's the same with the it's the same with the desires they're all corrupted But the desire, for example, for dominion is a God-given desire because it's a responsibility. So then in that context, I made this bold claim. I said that subjects aren't a classical idea, that there is no classical curriculum made up of subjects, not historically. Well, what on earth? Well, I made a, I think I said this, if I didn't, I'll say it now that subjects are part of the fragmentation of, the, of our minds, part of the fragmentation that comes with the breakdown of education in the, in the 17th, especially up through the 20th century. It's gradually, but two things happen. One is knowledge is fragmented. And the second thing that happens is it's made relative, right? The relativization of knowledge. And maybe a third thing could fit in there. It's reduced knowledge is reductionist, right? So there's, so there's fragmentation, there's relativization, and there's reduction of knowledge. So we who think we know so much nowadays actually it could be said and would be said by most people in the 17th century to know almost nothing, which philosophers are not coming to agree with. We, we, we don't know anything. We, we think we know a lot, but what do we actually know? We don't even know what light is. We don't even know what The coronaviruses, right? We think on this on this surface level, but then they say, "But we don't know anything." The philosophers, so no surprise there. But the question then becomes: Well, then, what do I teach my children? What do I learn myself? And what is what? What I would let's focus on the on the children because I'm going to make another bold claim here, which I think is derived from the classical tradition and certainly my reflections on it, and that's this: What you should teach your children is what they can learn. Make sense? I wouldn't bother teaching them something they can't learn. And one thing they can't learn is, strictly speaking, history. Now, wait, I didn't say they can't learn anything about history, I I didn't say they can't learn the history of anything in any way, but they can't learn history in this sense. They cannot speak with authority on historical questions. You see what I mean there? They cannot speak with authority on historical questions because they can't think for themselves yet. All they can do is read what somebody else says about history and interpret it, which is a really good thing to do, by the way. It's so valuable that that's what you should have them do instead of pretending to do history, okay? So what you can do is you can teach them the arts of learning. And then when they've learned how to learn, then they can learn history. But in the meantime, well, you have to teach something. You can't think about nothing, right? In other words, you can't teach them the arts of thinking if you don't give them something to think about. So let them think about historical stuff. Right. Do you see now that all of that might sound like I just pulled a dirty trick on you and said, yeah, but then you're saying we can teach history. But there's a huge difference between teaching history as a subject and teaching history so that you're as the content of of the training in the arts. Let me show you what I mean. Let me let me illustrate this in a pretty concrete way. Recently, I saw a conventional history book. a a, a textbook for third graders. Okay. I was, I shouldn't have told you that I was going to ask you, when would you start teaching something? There's a history text for third graders in this history text for third graders. There was an entire chapter on the three branches of the American government. And the, the, what the kids had to do was they had to look at diagrams and charts and they had to memorize the three branches of American government. So they learned about the legislative branch, they learned about the judicial branch, and they learned about the executive branch. Now, as far as that goes, that is a really good thing to learn. I have two problems though with the way it was done. One is that's not history, that's civics, you see? And by creating the subject history, they lost sight of what they were teaching. Now you could argue back, you could say, hey, wait a minute, how does history happen if, if you don't engage in political argument and that's all true that's true and and there is a history of civics and if that's what you're teaching is a history of civics or a, a history of a given civil society then you're probably going to have to deal with civics but then you should call it civics they used to back in the 20s and 30s if you were an immigrant that was one of the first things you had to study you had to learn how how the american constitution worked now today i read an article in a in a I think it was the Washington Post or, or the you know, main, um, mainstream newspaper, a very big, highly regarded newspaper, in which they were talking about how, um, how our, the American government is so nasty because somebody didn't get a $1,200 check they didn't have a, uh, because their spouse didn't have a social security number. And if you read really carefully what you found out, they didn't ever say it was that the spouse wasn't legally in the country. And so now, under our civic structure, there are people who believe that everybody in the world has the right to get money from our government if they are within our borders, right? That's the argument. Now, I'm not going to engage in a civic discussion about that right now, but that's an interesting concept to me, right? It's not something that you can just throw out on a table and say, this is the answer, you have to know the constitution of the country that's that's deciding what to do with its money, right? You can't, you can't just walk into somebody's house and say, you have to give me this money. You can't just walk into it. I can't walk into the state of New York and say everything that we do in North Carolina, I get to do here. There's authority, there's structure, right? So what I'm getting at is that the, the, the textbook was teaching eight-year-old kids extremely advanced civics concepts without doing anything to prepare them for it and without doing what they actually could easily have learned, and that is the underlying ideas that lead to an understanding of civics. So here's what I would do if I was teaching history, if I was teaching American history and I wanted the students to learn civics, if I wanted them to learn the three branches of government, okay, the first thing I would do is in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I would read fables, fairy tales, and folk tales to them and history stories. But I'd read ind- independent little stories about people who do do heroic things, virtuous things, courageous things. They don't have to be perfect people, but, they, but if, if they don't have virtue, it doesn't matter what they do. And the virtue isn't necessarily moral. It might, be, it might just be, you know, they're smart. There's no virtue in being smart. While well, there's an intellectual virtue, but not a moral virtue. Okay, so I'd read stories to them. And in the course of reading those stories, I would throw out questions, probably one that you'd anticipate. I would say something like, do you think you should have done that? And then I'd ask, what do you think you should do? I might pause the story and say, what do you think you should do? And get them looking to the future. That's what I would do for K to two. Then around third to fifth grade, I would start to raise it up a level. I would, I would, um, how can I put this? I would I would have them think about slightly more mature issues, slightly more abstract, and I might even give them timelines and things, but not very much yet. Still stories, more historical stories since since I'm moving in the direction of history, but I'd be asking the same questions. Now, around sixth grade, I would start getting into, I would take those same questions, but around sixth grade, I would start getting into this simple fact. I would say something like this to them. Have you ever noticed how your parents have to make decisions about things that you don't know much about? Because they need to know this, right? Have you ever noticed that they have to make decisions? And then I get into discussions about what's the difference between adult decisions and kid decisions. Wouldn't go too deep. Well, yeah, I'm throwing out a, a round number of 11 or 12 years old. I really even grades. I, I don't like grades any more than I like subjects. But you know, when they're ready for this discussion, let's put it that way. I would uh, fairy tales, folk tales, um, all those kinds of kids—what we call children's lit, right? Um, but around sixth grade, I would start looking more at the bigger structure of thought. And over sixth to eighth, ninth grade, I would be gradually moving them in the direction of recognizing that these decisions are really hard. In fact, sometimes you have to make a decision about the future and I would ask them to do it, right? And sometimes the decision about the future is so hard because you don't know anything about the future except what the past reveals to you. And And I would get them thinking about that. And then I would point out to them while we're studying history of something, that most societies actually choose a very few people who who get special training in thinking about the future. Now notice that they've been thinking this way since kindergarten. The same questions are being asked, exactly the same questions. What should be done? Compare, define um, circumstances. The difference is it's digging deeper and deeper and deeper. So now in the middle school years, you can get into the whole question of, of um, you could call them relevant issues, I suppose, although I hate doing that with kids in school because they, they, can't, they can't discuss relevant things because they, get, they can't think straight then. Roman stuff would be better for them because they don't care about that stuff. So you get into a discussion about the future, right? And then you talk about how people make decisions about the future and how there are adults who are specially trained for years to do that. Then you get into things about the past. You might even at this point take them to the courthouse and you might say, there are people who went to school for years to make decisions about the past, what should have been done. And if it shouldn't have been done, what are we going to do about it? Okay. Now you can point out that in your local community, there's an executive branch and a legislative branch, but you're not using that language until they've played with the animals, you see. Now, what I'm getting at is this. When you approach it this way, you're telescoping. You have the same basic ideas that the kindergartner was thinking about, but you're deepening it and deepening it and deepening it, deepening it, right? Kindergartners compare just like ninth graders do. They think about the future just like ninth graders do. They think about the past just like ninth graders do. But because of the modern way we educate, civics or history is this chunk of existence That's out there in a textbook has nothing to do with them. Well, that's the worst thing in the world you can do to a poor child is to make them study something that has nothing to do with their lives. But if you want them to really understand history, then spend a lot of time on fairy tales and fables when they're in kindergarten and engage in that that kind of discussion. Now, my time's up on this question. So unless you guys are bored senseless with the answer, I might pick it up again in the next class, but what I want to emphasize again so much is, well, there's something I want to add to this summary point, but what i what I want to emphasize so much is that the thought processes, the basic questions are the same. They're human. They're I would say they're God-given. They're created questions. and and they are the questions that we need to ask to become wise. And that, for that reason, the very practical matters of how we make decisions in, in, in the legislature is not very far removed from whether the ant should feed the grasshopper. That is why Abraham Lincoln could constantly draw on f- fables. And what was the other thing he would always read? He read Aesop's fables all the time in Geometry, and then there was, oh, the King James Version in Shakespeare. That's it. That's pretty well all he read. And yet, look at the wisdom he got from that. Look at the insight he got into, into human nature from that. Okay, so if what I've talked about here is primarily, I would say, from the curriculum perspective, I want to talk about it more from the pedagogical perspective, which is to say, okay, that's fine, big picture. How would I how would I discuss? I guess it, this kind of was, wasn't it? Um, maybe what I want to do is is draw out some things about curriculum and draw out some things about pedagogy separately. And so I might pursue this question some more. But if nobody's interested in it, then, you know, throw some other questions out. Um, so, I, okay, this is what I'm going to pick up because I think it's important. So I don't even care if you want to hear this. Next time, next time we, we talk, I'm going to talk about how you can teach grammar, logic, and rhetoric as the three triv- arts of the trivium in history. Now, I've talked about that. I just didn't name it. But I want to specify it for you in the next session. Okay. On Thursday, Thursday at nine. So forgive me for, forgive me for, I guess this becomes sort of a prologue. I meant to actually answer the question all the way. Um, okay. So let me pause now or even stop. And Katie, I'll turn it over to you. And there is a question up there that might be worth pursuing if, if it, if it fits in, but I don't, I'm not directing you. You're directing me because you're the boss here. Okay. Is
3: the question the one about the teens or okay. the one that yeah. yeah. Okay. Because the question that I was going to ask you is related to that. So we can just kind okay. of weave this together. Um, so this one is what if you have teens and you haven't started right doing this way? The other question that I was going to ask is how can I foster wholeness and harmony during this upcoming teen years? So that's mm-hmm. going back to what you were talking about in previous weeks, but I think we can tie all that together.
1: Okay, that's, that's actually really good. I love the question, how can I foster wholeness and harmony in the teen years? Because that's what is under threat during the teen years. Um, and it's related to the other question about what if we didn't have this when the kids were little? Well, here's, here's the good news. They've still lived, and I don't mean survived, I mean, they've still lived their lives, and they've experienced all of these things. They've experienced stories. Maybe they were movies. Right. I mean, you could you could easily get in a discussion about Star Wars and, and compare the Republic with the Empire and the, and the Senate and all that stuff and, and, you know, draw that into the discussion. So you still have background. You still have background for it because it's universally human. The, the advantage of starting young is that you can give them names for these animals much sooner and you can give them conscious practice using it. But it is never too late. And I would draw the parallel to playing a piano, right? If you want to learn how to play the piano, start at level one and go on from there. But you can go faster when you're older. Okay, I'm being told that my my time is up. Andrea just slits slits my throat at the end of a minute. But I kind of want to talk about the the wholeness and harmony because that's a different enough question. Should I or should I go on to the next question?
3: I'll allow it
1: for now okay thank you by the way you guys watch katie's face katarina's face because in uganda when you say yes you don't actually say anything you 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 lift your eyebrows right so for in her five years living in uganda she developed that habit so so now she's learning to say yes again she's having to do english as a second language for saying yes or a third language so okay so um and she's really cute when she lifts her eyebrows, too, not, not, not wanting to create more distraction here. But anyway, um, wholeness and harmony. Th- the way you cultivate wholeness and harmony, first of all, is by not doing things that break it down. And if you put them in a curricular structure where nothing has to do with anything else, you're not cultivating wholeness and harmony. The second thing you do is you teach in a mode that integrates. This is my medic teaching my and and it's teaching in the form of Christ where you the whole world becomes part of your lesson and the way you teach you you are treating your child's mind like what it is a loom and they're weaving a tapestry on the loom of their mind and so what you do is you give them tools by which they can integrate their thoughts and then in the way you teach you give them habits by which they can integrate their thoughts so I can only give that very general answer right now because of the amount of time. But, um, I would say the answer fundamentally is my medic teaching in the seven liberal arts.
3: (laughs) Okay. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Wow. You had seven seconds left. Well, what? What?
1: Well, let me talk then. I thought you. Well, that's from the previous question. Okay. See, if you text me, then I get everything mixed up. Oh,
3: um, Okay, so the next question is related to another one that someone had asked here. Um, can you explain the difference between a skill and an art?
1: The difference between a skill. Um yes. the way so- I would say put it is this: you, you can you can create kind of a hierarchy. Think of it like this: you 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 do actions. Okay. If you repeat an action often enough, it becomes a habit. If it becomes a habit that you want to keep and it does you good then it becomes a skill. If you, if you want to keep your skills, then you practice them even more and they become arts. And in a certain sense, what, a, what an art is, is a, a, a batch of skills, if you like, that go together at a higher level, that are, that are joined together by a higher end, and crucially, allow for the movement of breath Right for inspiration to flow into them. So, so a skill is kind of a subset of an art. Now beware of method here because the, what a method person does is break everything down into very concrete steps. Um, but as long as you can avoid sliding into method, you can, you can see that every art consists of smaller activities. Um, for example, painting. You can't paint if you can't draw. Is that it? You're muted.
3: Oops. I was playing music to let you know the time was up.
1: Oh, no wonder I couldn't. Hear okay.
3: <laughs> you just saw me dancing, oddly. Okay. Okay. So another question that relates back to the history, but also broadly the things you're talking about. What would you say to a teacher teaching in a modern or progressive school who wants to have some classical elements, maybe is inspired by what you're saying, but yet is in this school system? What would you yeah. say? To that? Is it possible? Do you try it? What do you try? And if there are suggestions, is there like?: What like you you're doing it?
1: If you did it?: They would just think that you're using an interesting methodology. There was a lady in the '90s named Margaret, something or other, who popularized a reduced version of. What I forget what it was called in the 1890s, they called it the method of the recitation. And it was five stages that parallel the seven stages of mimetic teaching. Herbert Spencer developed it. Uh, Aristotle developed it. Some teachers, colleges or colleges might still teach it. So I, I don't think in the typical um, progressive or public school, they would they would even know that you're doing something distinctive. Um they like in a in a in a in a conventional school, what they want is everybody to sit still in their desk, be quiet, and and receive information. But in a progressive school, what they want is kind of wildness and interaction. So what mimetic teaching does is brings those two together. You you have discipline and order, and you have an objective, and you have, because of that, you know you're going somewhere, you can the kids can be free to actually think. So if you follow the steps of mimetic teaching in a in a progressive school, they'd probably be impressed unless you made strong truth claims. And, and in, in that case, they'd be more comfortable with ideology and less comfortable with truth. So you have to be careful about that. Is that my whole minute?
3: Yeah, could you hear the music that time?
1: Uh-uh.
3: Ah, summer. Okay, I think we have one more question. And I think I'm gonna use this question here um, how do you balance discipline and hard work with what Charlotte Mason calls masterly inactivity mm-hmm. or what I believe has been called Scole? I'm adding that. I think we could call it that. Yeah. Okay. yeah um, how would you respond to that?
1: Yeah. The first thing I would argue or, or suggest is that you switch your metaphor. Balance doesn't really work for that. What you want is integration and harmony and purposefulness it's not a matter of on on this part of the scale you have um wildness and or whatever and on this part you have masterly or here's discipline Here's masterly inactivity mimetic teaching is a is a contemplative way of teaching it's rhythmic it has times it has it has sequences of of hard focused attention and then it goes into a more leisurely contemplative mode and then it goes back into the hard work And so, what you what you um, what you end up doing is finding that it's restful and it's super productive. That's the way I would put it. Um, So you never. This is this is my this is the spiritual way of thinking about it for me. Rest for the human being doesn't come after work. Okay, God is always at rest. So. God who is resting, created, and then at the end rested. He commands us to enter into his rest. And we have to enter into his rest before we work. That's why the Sunday is the first day of the week, right? in, In the new world, in the new creation. And if we enter into his rest before we work, then we carry that rest with us. But if we wait until we're done with the work, then... We were anxious and straining and worried about a lot of things. So for us, rest, ha- rest has to come first, then it has to permeate the work. And, that ha- and when we're teaching, that's how it has to be. We have to, we, have to, we have to know the outcome, as it were, and then we have to rest our way to it diligently. That's it. Oh, for all the questions?
3: Yeah, we did five. Okay. Would you you want to do one more?
1: Well, let me, if that's the case, let me respond to a couple of things that, that are up here. I'll go backwards. Finding information on my teaching. Well, the, the easiest way to do that would be to go to the Cersei website. Um, three things I would recommend uh, taking a, a look at. One is the atrium. I do, I teach a, kind of a, think of it as a college level class. It meets twice a month and we read hard books and talk about them. And we go through the history of thought. Now, what I'm going to be doing next year is is, uh, it's called One One Art to Rule Them All. And I'm going to be talking in quite a bit of detail about, well, about um, this kind of teaching and how it was done, especially, I mean, we don't want to see that classical education is like something that happened in 750 B.C., was done exactly the same till 1600 and then stopped, right? What, what, um, what it was was 2,500 years of people arguing about how to teach, but they, ha- they argued at a high level. And, and then it just collapsed and we started arguing at a really low level. So the atrium is going to go into that history, specifically the history of rhetoric, but teaching is an act of rhetoric. So you might find that interesting. Um, Do a Google search or or go to our website and search My Medic Teaching, M-I-M-E-T-I-C, and you'll find things on that. It'll be in the blog. I've done Ask Andrews on it. I've done lectures. Matt Bianco has done quite a bit on it. Um, You can find it there. The best thing, in my opinion, is Andrea Lipinski, uh, her apprenticeship program. I think it's one of a kind in the world. I think it'll take you more deeply into the heart of teaching than than anything else I'm aware of, so if if anybody has participated in the apprenticeship and agrees or disagrees with that, you're welcome to to comment. But I, that's a three year program. It's a bigger commitment, but that's that's the deepest and, and most thorough way you actually practice teaching in that and getting feedback from a mentor. Um, I said three things: Atrium, apprenticeship. We do a lot of uh, webinars and and um, intensives. Katie, what am I thinking of? What 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 am I forgetting? There's there's other ways. Uh, Classical, you at Classical Academic Press, they have some things on medic teaching and on scole They have wonderful things on Scole. Um, mm-hmm, six week classes, we call those intensives. A webinar is a is a one session, uh, one hour typically, maybe ninety minutes program, I guess. And then an intensive is six weeks. And we do have classes that go year round. And watch for watch for Andrea Lipinski or Matt Bianco to be doing stuff on Lost Tools of Writing. Um, they teach Lost Tools of Writing mimetically. And the Lost Tools of Writing is a rhetoric program taught mimetically so that you get practice teaching this way while learning classical rhetoric. So it, it really is a, you know, one of the things that that, that I keep trying to emphasize is that there's an elegant simplicity to classical education. It's not fragmented and broken up. And some of the ways it weaves together, are, are, they're almost funny. But I, get, I, mean, I, I can imagine people rolling their eyes at me a lot of times when I tell them how things fit together, and they're going, come on. But they do. So I would say those are probably the best, the best approaches to learn more. But the easiest is, is to go on our website, type in my medic teaching, and see what you can find. Okay. Uh, I said, th- oops, I said I was going to scan up here. Let's see. Where can we find this information? Can you sum up in the four steps again, please? The four steps. Did I talk about four steps?
3: I think someone summed that up right after the comment.
1: Oh, it was skills and art. Yeah, right. Right. Thank you. Action becomes habit. Habit becomes skill. Skills combined to become an art. And I would push it further and say that, that arts are made they reach their fullness when they become virtues so each thing becomes perfected by going up a level actions can be good or bad but they're better if they become like an action is perfected when it's when it's a habit habits are perfected when they're skills i think and so on okay um Did I answer? I
3: I believe you answered all of them, except are the arts of learning the same as the five common topics. Oh, very good. Okay. So
1: the arts of learning, um, how can I put this? You can, you can see it as, okay, there's this one great, big, beautiful thing. It's called the pursuit of wisdom. Okay. And, and in the pursuit of wisdom, It's kind of like the desires. The pursuit of wisdom refracts, and there are multiple paths that we take to become wise because God has given us multiple ways of thinking, okay? Those (laughs) paths divide into two basic categories. They divide into language and all the things that we can do with language to understand life, and they divide into, I want to say forms, but for convenience, I'm going to say mathematics. Okay, so um, just understand that math to the classical people was a very different thing than it is to us. Um, But if you if you look at language and you look at maths, then the next step is okay. What skills are the most important skills or tools of learning when it comes to language? And we call well, they came to be called grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Okay, And grammar, this is really important for for all the stuff I'm saying about about, um, subjects and so on. Grammar does include, please understand, grammar does include the structure of language. The things that, that we think of now as grammar, subjects, predicates, and so on. It includes that. But that's because the structure of language, if you understand the structure of language, you can interpret things. And grammar, fundamentally, the essential skill that underlies grammar is the skill of interpreting signs. Now, a sign can be a word; it can be it can be a stop sign; it can be a picture; it can be uh, it can be a star in the sky; it can be you know a constellation. A sign can be pretty well. In fact, everything is a sign for the from the Christian paradigm because we're signs, right? We're images, so everything is a sign, and we can make signs. So grammar is the art of interpreting signs and to some extent making signs. Okay. In other words, it's reading, it's writing. Logic then, or now if I can, let me, let me add this very quickly, that grammar is the art of interpreting signs in order to bring harmony to your mind. Okay, we, we tend to, our minds tend to fragment. But we can, but if we're given the right signs, names of things, for example, then we can bring harmony to our minds, to our thoughts, and then we can interact with the world we live in intelligently and wisely. Okay, so grammar is the art of interpreting signs, and thereby the means to bringing harmony to our minds. All right, logic, then. Um, logic, maybe, maybe, maybe I should put it this way. Um, Grammar is understanding the form of thoughts. That's practically. It's understanding the form of thoughts so that you can interpret them. Okay. Logic, then, is understanding the form of arguments so that you can extend the harmony in your mind and so that you can resolve discords. I think it was Cyril of Alexander who said that the, the, the function of dialectics is to, is to resolve lies or something like that. Um, I think that's a negative way of putting it, but it's a good one. Um, if you Clement, thank you. So if, if you see, if you hear somebody say something that you believe is not true, the way you can determine whether it's true or not is by analyzing it logically as a syllogism. That's one of the best ways. Because then you're looking for the harmony of the thought. Because truth is always harmonious. And lies are not. Okay? They can be harmonious in themselves, but they won't be harmonious with the world. So anyway, so logic then is, is um, the form of thought. And it is the means by which we can be extend the harmony in our mind and maintain it with other people. And then rhetoric is the art of of um well it's a form of communication with other people i would even go so far as to say it's the tools of decision making rhetoric is the art of decision making it's not the art of persuasion that's a subset of it it's the art of decision making and therefore it's the art by which we bring harmony to a community and you notice that if you're not trained to bring harmony to a community, you won't be good at it. And, and so when you don't teach rhetoric to a community, that community is not going to be good at making decisions because it's hard. Okay. So grammar, logic, and rhetoric then are, the, are three of the crucial tools of learning. Contained within them, in turn, are additional you could say those are toolboxes and contained within them are additional tools and you can keep you know keep going down 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 within grammar the sentence the the subject the predicate the adjective the parts of speech things like that those are tools of learning um words within rhetoric you get into things like um um uh the common topics the structure of an argument, the structure of a speech. Those are tools of learning okay, and and so on. And then in math, of course, you get other perceptions. The only thing I'll say very quickly about math because of time is that arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, which are the four arts of the quadrivium, four of the seven arts, each of those is also a, a different mode of truth perception. Arithmetic enables you to look at the world and to perceive reality in a different way from geometry. And geometry enables you to perceive reality. It needs arithmetic, but enables you to perceive reality in a way different from arithmetic. And then music, which means it includes what we think of as music, but it's a lot more than that in the tradition. Music enables you to see the the world in yet another different way. Related to and dependent on arithmetic and geometry, but not the same. And astronomy in turn enables you to see the world in yet another different way. So really what I'm saying is these seven modes of perception, that's what the seven liberal arts are. There's seven modes of perception. And what is it you're learning how to perceive? Truth. Now the good news is you've learned all seven of these arts to some degree. You don't necessarily need formal training. But boy, is it helpful. And if you're going to go on to higher levels and higher levels of responsibility, then we do go out and get training, don't we? If I'm going to engage in judicial decisions, I'm going to go to law school. If I'm going to engage in in deliberative decisions, I'll probably go to law school for that too. If I'm going to engage in physics, I'm going to go to, 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 I'm going to take math, lots of math classes. Unfortunately, they aren't going to teach me about the quadrivium. But what What we need to teach our children is modes of truth perception. And that's what the seven liberal arts are. That's why Alcuin, I think it was, identified the seven liberal arts as the seven pillars of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And when I first read that, I laughed at him. And 20, 25 years later, I'm starting to think he was on to something. These are universal. Everybody does all seven of these things god made us that way but to master them to get really good at them that is to be educated but that, that's okay. fundamentally what they meant by education right through the renaissance okay
3: i have to close you out but real quick before we say goodbye can you just say are you telling people not to use textbooks or are you saying it's fine to use textbooks as a resource but be wise and discerning how you use them just real quick comment on that, and then we're going to close out.
1: Well, I think that you want a quick comment. Um, I think that you have to be, well, let's say you're in school and you're assigned a textbook. Then you should use it. You should use it because, as Paul says, slaves should obey their masters. And what's far more important than than that you teach in the perfect way is that your soul is made holy. right? And, and it's not when we're in rebellious modes so i think we should be offering ourselves up to god as a living sacrifice and that means that if i believe i should use a text or not use a textbook but my boss tells me i should then i should but if i'm a free and independent person able to make this decision on myself on my own then i would recommend not using a textbook but you should still use books and that might raise the question of what is a textbook Um, it's a method driven book. Uh, a textbook is where, where things are reduced into the teacher isn't even needed in a in a real tech, in a, you know, a complete textbook. Um,
3: so now that we've made everyone sufficiently anxious and feel that they're doing everything wrong and need to throw out all their books. Oh, well, we
1: are. We always <laughs> have. Been. It's OK. Lord's OK with that. Why should we get upset at ourselves?
3: Right, right. Well, we can comment on that more on the next time. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to want to hear more about what books to be using and what, how to be using their textbooks. So,
1: we can I like these two that. comments, though. Be the textbook, yeah, and if, and if you can know everything that they need to know in that art, that would be great, or if you can stay ahead of them. Um, and if you have to use a textbook, do not be enslaved by it. You can take control of most textbooks. In fact, one of these days, I'm going to do a talk on how you can use my medic teaching to evaluate a textbook.
3: As I'm sure everyone would love to hear. Um, that wasn't sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> I love to say, as your daughter, that wasn't sarcasm. Okay. Well, there's lots of questions. People are still sending me private questions oh, as well. Okay. Um, I-